0: Hello and welcome to the Traveling Historian Podcast. My name is Casey and I am the Traveling Historian. Now, our topic for today is something that probably came up in the news and you might have seen it and probably want to learn a little bit more about it, and that is the Syrian Civil War. It's been going, something that's been going on for the past couple of years now, and chances are you've heard about it either in the news every now and again or seen a news article on it, but the conflict is extremely complicated. And so what we're going to try and do today is shed some light on how we got to the point that we are now. And what we are going to be doing is going over the brief history of Syria, the conflict, the start of it, and how it's progressed to this point. Now again, this isn't some comprehensive list of every single event, name, date that's happened in this conflict. Because there we would be talking for six hours. And they've had conferences that last for several hours on a single event. So we want to avoid that. Because again, that's not our goal here. Our goal is to make the topic not necessarily exciting, but something that you are interested in to learn about. And if I'm sitting here for six hours, droning on about names, numbers, and facts, then it's going to lose interest. So. What we're going to be doing is starting off with the history of Syria. Syria itself, as a country, emerges as an independent nation in 1946 after the occupation by the French during World War II. And prior to that point, the region of Syria had been occupied by France after World War I, going after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Now, democratic rule ends in 1949, After a military coup topples the government, another two coups will quickly follow uh, the same year, uh, which is is a trend for overthrows of governments, usually, is that it's not just one and done. It's something that it it takes a couple of times, and normally even among the plotters of the original coup, there's some disagreements which will lead to follow-up coups, which we see here. Now, in 1954, civilians were able to restore control over the military, and from 1958 to 1961, it entered into a brief union with Egypt. Now, that might sound a little strange, but it's around this time that we see a movement called Ba'athism developing, and essentially this is Arab nationalism, the idea that Arabs should unite together and form their own unitary state to try and overthrow European oppressors that had been occupying the region. Now, this is primarily led by President Nasser in Egypt, and Syria briefly joins in this movement, and effectively, loosely, Egypt and Syria are a single nation. However, in 1963, the Ba'ath Syrian Regional Branch, so the branch of the Ba'ath Party that's in Syria, organizes a successful coup but even then, there are still several coups that followed that one because people want power. And even they do it under the guise of Arab nationalism and this sense of unity, but really they're out for their own gain. And following that, in March of 1971, we have Hafez al-Assad, who is an Alawite. Now, for those of us who don't know, an Alawite is a Shia subgroup that primarily live along the coastal region of Syria. The Alawites are Muslims. They are from the Shia branch of Islam. Now, in 1971, Hafez declares himself president, and he will remain so for 29 years. So this is not a democratic position, even though he's declared himself president. It's anything but. Now, during his rule, Syria becomes a one-party state, So even if there might be legally other government parties on paper, they will never stand a chance of winning any type of power or election. And he will implement a new constitution in 1973, which is met with large protests, uh, primarily due to the condition that the president doesn't need to be a Muslim. And this angered a lot of the more conservative elements in Syria who saw Syria as being a Muslim country and wanted to keep it that way. These protests and revolts are crushed by Hafez with brutality, uh, which actually results in the deaths of up to 40,000 people. And that should tell us what we're dealing with here, that even if necessarily you know, you'd agree or disagree with the protesters, that... The resulting deaths of about 40,000 civilians by the government is troubling. Hafez will eventually die, and in 2000, his son Bashir al-Assad will be elected president of Syria. Bashar al-Assad had been educated in Britain, actually, and so many people were hoping that this Western education would promote a sense of democratic reform in Assad. But however, these hopes are dashed uh, when protests begin in 2001. The Damascus Spring protests, which, as they are known, uh, which again started in 2001, were routed after many of its leaders were arrested by the government and protesters were largely silenced for many years. Following a massive drought in 2006 through 2011, this actually brings a great strain on the Syria's infrastructure and the economy as people are demanding more assistance, more resources. People who don't have jobs are going to the cities looking for jobs and can't find them. And so large-scale protests begin in March of 2011 in Damascus, the capital of Syria, after security forces actually arrest, torture, and kill a 13-year-old boy for anti-government graffiti in the southern city of Dara. Now, just pause and think about that for just a second. We're talking about a 13-year-old child who sprayed graffiti that was critical of the government on a wall. And in response, the government arrests a child, a 13-year-old, tortures them, and kills them. It's heavy-handed tactics like that that only escalate the situation in Syria. Because in late March, protesters will burn down a Ba'ath Party headquarter and other buildings, which resulted in dead on both sides. So we can see that after this, the situation really starts to escalate. And the death of that 13-year-old boy is the catalyst that will eventually propel Syria into civil war. Bashar Assad decries these protesters as being inspired by Israel and other foreign actors. So already he's trying to take a step that delegitimizes These protests, and this is nothing unique to Syria in complaining, saying that protesters are paid for by some other country. We see this in a lot of dictatorial countries, you know, Russia uh, and Ukraine, China, different countries that have one party states or dictators in power will claim that any resistance against them is not legitimate normally by being sponsored by another power until April 7th you know these protests demanded democratic reforms release of political prisoners and an increase in freedoms it was very simple and throughout this entire thing you know again we're not going to talk about every single group and obviously there is an immense spectrum of people that are protesting with different beliefs in, in and of themselves you can look at that just in your own country Look at different protesters. Some will want very modest things. Others will go to the end of the extremes. Again, early on, these protests, they all they're demanding are democratic reforms, essentially, release of political prisoners and making the society freer. After April 8th, these protests had actually spread to 10 major cities and increasingly started to call for the overthrow of the Assad government. So when these protesters see that demands aren't being met, or that security forces are being violent against protesters, it hardens their heart, essentially. And they increasingly see the Assad government as a whole as being corrupt and in need of change. So by April 22nd, over 20 cities were experiencing protests, and by the end of May, around 1,000 civilians and 150 soldiers had been killed and thousands more arrested. So even during this time when it's still protests... Things aren't calm. There is still violence. There is still murders happening. And we can see that in a two-month period, we have a 1,000 civilians being killed by the government for protesting against it. And many of these early activists are students, that they are university students, uh, middle class, that are being educated, that want these freedoms. And so a lot of the early victims that we see of the revolution and the Civil War, are students. They are young adults that want a different life. Now, obviously, this does escalate. And so on June 4th, uh, in the city of Jasir al Shagur, which is in the northwestern part of the country, members of the security forces actually defect after secret police begin to execute soldiers and police officers who refuse to fire on protesters. Because the worry of the Assad government was that if soldiers and police officers were allowed to get away with refusing direct orders to shoot at civilians, then that could spread to the rest of the ranks. And so they started ordering secret police to execute these troublemakers. So on June 29th, later that month, the Free Syrian Army is formed by a group of defected soldiers from the Syrian military with the aim of removing Assad. They release a video statement saying, here's who we are, we are defecting, and this is our goal. We, our goal is to overthrow the Assad government. And this is when the struggle turns from protests with violence to a rebellion, to a the beginnings of the civil war. And so these rebel forces engage in guerrilla tactics against the regime as they continue to crack down on protesters. So these things are coinciding. And we have rebels that are actively in open-arm rebellion against the government, still while protesters are in the streets. And again, this shows us that there is this dynamic, this spectrum of people. That there are some people either unwilling, unable, or they don't see the necessity to resort to violence yet. And so this is where we are now. And an Arab League uh, monitoring mission is sent to Syria to try and de-escalate the conflict, but the mission fails after the government will deny observers inactive battlefields, which, as you can imagine, for a monitoring mission doesn't help the situation. So this mission outright fails because the government won't allow these monitors into the territories they want to monitor (laughs) now we have several ceasefire attempts that fail and it's at this point that we have the hula massacre which gets committed by supporters of the regime in its small town in northwestern holmes province which is in the northwestern part of the country and this results in the deaths of over 100 civilians and the united nations does a fact-finding mission into this event and concludes that regime supporters were responsible for the massacre. This results in a Free Syrian Army ultimatum, which the government refuses and ensures that the conflict spirals further into civil war. And so once we arrive into early 2013, rebel forces launched large-scale assaults on government forces, and the regime responds by launching Scud missiles. And Scud missiles are large ballistic missiles. Now, this is when we have groups such as al-Nusra, which is an affiliate of al-Qaeda, who also aids rebel forces. And this is where we first get our glimpse into ISIS. Because early ISIS groups are essentially al-Qaeda militants. And they are based in the western portions of Iraq. And they see an opportunity to expand their base. And so they send groups over into Syria to help aid in this conflict under the name of the Nusra Front. Now, this will come into play later, but that's where they primarily get their origins. And then in the northern parts of Syria, we have Kurdish People's Protection Units, commonly known as the YPG, who also expelled the forces from Hasaka and Afrin provinces in the northeast and northwest of the country, respectively. Now the Kurds are their own ethnic group and they are a minority group in the Middle East and they were actually supposed to have their own state given to them after the conclusion of world war one, but they didn't because the allies essentially said, eh, well, we did a lot of other things and that doesn't really benefit us. So the Kurds kind of got the short end of the stick and they are still persecuted in their native countries in the most common bases where we see these Kurdish populations are in Syria, Iraq, and Turkey, and there's also a portion of the population in Iran. So these groups also expel the government, and this really signals a transition point for the this conflict. Now that these rebel units are mobilizing themselves and are launching not a guerrilla campaign, which is to say they aren't staying to the shadows and executing hit and run attacks that they are launching full offensives against the government to take territory and it's through this that they managed to take control of the city of Raqqa in March of 2013 which actually becomes the first provincial capital to fall and Raqqa itself is an ancient city that's recorded back when the Romans were in town and by July the situation had reached a stalemate as government and Hezbollah forces pushed back some of these rebels and Hezbollah is a Shia Islamist group from Lebanon that is supported by Iran. And they will come to the aid of the Assad government, which, if we remember being Alawites, they are a Shia minority group. So as this conflict becomes increasingly sectarian, uh, pitting different ethnic and religious groups against one another, they become natural allies. It's at around the same time that ISIS will launch its own invasion because what happens is Baghdadi, who is the caliph of ISIS, he declares that the troops that form the Nusra Front will combine themselves with the fighters that are in Iraq. And essentially what happens is a bunch of these Nusra fighters don't agree with it. And they say, we aren't swearing our loyalty to you, we are loyal to, to Al-Qaeda. And so they break away from ISIS and there's infighting. Now, these rebel groups are in no way united with each other. They will cooperate for sometimes, and then they will break apart and start fighting each other because a lot of these different groups either have regional familiarity and loyalties or ethnic loyalties. So a lot of these groups have their own loyalties and agendas so this leads to a problem where a lot of these groups aren't able to unify with each other and this becomes a problem that will greatly affect them down the line and it also crucially allows ISIS who is organized and is under extremely competent leadership and a lot of the leadership that forms ISIS are actually ex-generals who served under Saddam Hussein so people with battle experience with knowledge of logistics and strategy are going against a bunch of disorganized groups that will just as much fight each other as they will their common enemies so isis is able to launch this attack from eastern syria and it results in a lot of territory being captured from rebel groups and the government now by the time we get to august this will see the first major chemical attack in the war by the Assad regime against a civilian population in Damascus itself, in the capital city, resulting in over a 1,000 civilians being killed and more than 3,000 being wounded. This is despite evidence that the regime had destroyed its chemical weapons stockpiles under the observation of its ally, Russia, which was one of the early agreements in the war. So this proved pretty conclusively that this was not the case, that either the regime had hid stores of chemical weapons or that the Russians were actively covering for the Assad regime. In August of 2013, the conflict will see its first major chemical attack by the Assad government against the civilian population in the capital city of Damascus itself, which will result in over a 1,000 civilian deaths and more than 3,000 wounded. Now, despite the evidence, uh, the regime continues to deny its usage of chemical weapons. But following this, the UN will demand that Syria give up its chemical weapons and with Russia being its observer. So essentially, it's guarantor saying, yep, we made sure that they got rid of all of their materials and they are complying. And this is because Russia has a naval port in Syria as an ally of Bashar al-Assad. So the UN trusted that their relationship with each other would lead to a positive outcome. However, evidence that emerges later on shows that they did not fully destroy the stockpile of chemical weapons. And it's starting in September of 2013 that ISIS begins its offensive against rebel units and will take most of the eastern part of the country, including the city of Raqqa. And this will become essentially ISIS's de facto capital now we say de facto versus de jure because de jure is legal right and essentially isis wanted their de jure capital to be in mosul now the reason it is de facto is because isis will place a lot of its leadership here and essentially where it will govern from and so further on raqqa becomes a very important target in the campaign against isis And as mentioned before, this is when we start seeing the major split between al-Nusra and ISIS, uh, as most of al-Nusra chooses to side with the rebels rather than ISIS. And this is primarily because ISIS's global vision is for a global caliphate, an Islamic empire that will go out and conquer the rest of the world. Whereas al-Nusra's goal is in Syria. It doesn't aspire to expand beyond the Syrian boundaries. It has this goal of overthrowing the Assad regime and implementing its own rule of law in Syria alone. Now, the government will take advantage of this infighting and this moment where the rebels are on the back foot, and they are able to reverse many of the early advances that had been made by the rebels in those past months. During all this fighting, it's not as if there isn't something going on in the back room. Now, since the beginning of the conflict, there were several attempts that had been made to end the violence, but all of them had failed. Part of the difficulty was that the Syrian government refuses to negotiate with any opposition group because it labels all of them, regardless of what they espouse, as being terrorists. And so, as you can imagine, that puts a hamper on negotiations. And they aren't even able to be in the same room as each other. And the united nations envoy to syria actually has to essentially act as a an owl and go back and forth between these two groups in different rooms and say well they are demanding this and then hear what that side has to say then go back to the other room and say well this side's now demanding this and that doesn't make for a positive source of conversation and so that leads nowhere in February of 2016 is when we get the United Nations announcing that it will begin a formal process to achieve peace in Syria, which is being negotiated in Geneva. And that conference is still going on today, so that hasn't concluded. Now, the opposition, again, being extremely disjointed, but the most internationally recognized group that represents the opposition is the Syrian High Negotiations Committee, who will negotiate on the behalf of the Syrian rebels as much as they can, and the envoy that I mentioned before, who is running errands back and forth, his name is Staffan de Mistura, and he will he will try his best to mediate this conflict, but he failed, and he is actually resigning at the end of this year from that post. And so, as I mentioned before, that both sides have their own demands. The opposition demands that Assad not be part of the peace process, that he step down from the government, but the government in turn declared that negotiating Assad's presidency was a red line, that they wouldn't negotiate anything further if that was on the table. And so already negotiations are off to a rocky start if both sides disagree with the, the fundamental bedrock of the negotiations. Now, one of the processes that gets implemented later on are these things called de-escalation zones, which are more recent attempts at lowering violence in Syria, and we'll talk about them a little more specifically later, but these will repeatedly be abused by the Syrian government and Russia. There's also a parallel set of talks being held in the city of Astana and funded by Russia, Um, But these have also led nowhere. Now, I've mentioned Russia a few times as being a natural ally of Assad because they have a naval base and strategic interests in the country. And Russia doesn't want to risk losing that naval base and that ally. But rather than deploying a large number of ground units, because Russia, as much as it projects power, it has very little hard power. It's a country that has a very weak economy comparative to its size and a shrinking population. And so Russia is worried that it will lose its power in the world. So Russia can't send large numbers of ground units that would be costly and risk damaging the economy and approval ratings in Russia. So they opt to utilize its air force, which is significantly more advanced than what Syria has uh, by a long shot. And they use this to bolster struggling government ground units. And this will be an effective way of turning the tide of battle. That in the field, neither the Syrian rebels or the Syrian army had a decisive advantage over one another. And it's not until that the Russians bring in their air power that we see this battle favor switching over more firmly into the government. And the most significant usage of this air power was in the Battle of Aleppo which is the second largest city in Syria in the northern part of the country. And for years, it had been divided in half between the rebels who primarily occupied the eastern part of the city and the government who occupied the western part of the city. But the Russians bring in their air power to decimate rebel forces, and in the waning months of 2016, it ends the several-year battle for this city, and the government is able to march victorious through the rest of the city. But the Russian military strategy is more akin to carpet bombing than strategic bombing. The Russians would repeatedly target medical facilities, hospitals, schools, vital civilian infrastructure as a means of breaking the population. And for the United Nations and for most of the world, this is a war crime that you are not supposed to be deliberately, deliberately targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. Now, the Russians have denied this and continue to deny their role in civilian deaths in Syria, despite evidence to the contrary. Regardless, that strategy was extremely effective against rebel forces in the city. The regime is able to take it, but most of the eastern portion of the city is in ruins and continues to be in ruins and rubble. Since then, regime military units heavily rely on the Russian Air Force for both attacking and defense. And this will essentially make the conflict go into a stalemate because the rebels will launch several offensive that will gain a significant amount of territory. But when the Russian Air Force enters the fray, they have no ability to counter it. They have no anti-aircraft weapons that can threaten these Russian aircraft. And so they are open pickings for these Russian military aircraft. As a part of this strategy, Russia has also stepped up shipments of both weapons and vehicles to bolster these regime forces. And the forces that Russia primarily deploys on the ground aren't regular military. Instead, they are private military contractors. They are a PMC, a military company known as uh, Wagner. And this group has gone under several rebrandings, but this group allows Russia to operate effectively in the field, on the battlefield, but do it under the radar. And so if this group suffers a large amount of casualties, it will go essentially unnoticed because they aren't being listed as KIA on Russian government records. And so what they do is they are able to effectively help the government win back territory and bolster defensive lines with Russian units that are under the table, essentially. But this intervention is met with global criticism against Russia because of that spike in civilian deaths that I mentioned earlier, strikes against civilian infrastructure, as well as using its veto power in the United Nations Security Council to protect the Syrian government from facing any action over those chemical weapons that we mentioned earlier. And as a sidestep for that, Russia is one of the permanent members on the United Nations Security Panel, the group that is responsible for implementing security operations. So if the UN were to approve a military operation in another country, the United Nations Security Council has to vote for it unanimously. If one country in that group says no, it vetoes it, then the mission will fail. It doesn't matter if every single other member of that committee, that council, agrees if one person doesn't then it won't go anywhere it fails and so russia has used that veto power to block investigations interventions that would have harmed the assad government and this has led to a lot of criticism against them but nothing has really come of it because there is no mechanism to punish russia beyond what individual countries may do and if russia is intervening then there are plenty of other countries that are as well. And since the beginning of the conflict, there have been many foreign nations that have attempted to wield their influence in Syria to obtain a favorable outcome for themselves. The CIA and the Pentagon uh, began efforts to arm and train opposition fighters in the fight against ISIS. Uh, But this effort largely met with failure due to the strict regimen that the U S had for these fighters that these fighters had to agree that they would not fight the Assad government, but purely ISIS alone. And for a lot of Syrians who were in the opposition, Assad was their primary enemy was the whole reason that this thing had started to them. And so being told that we will not train you if you will fight that enemy means that most of the candidates that would come into that program can't because they want to fight someone that the u.s doesn't want them to fight and so this train and equip program fails miserably because of that stringent requirement and several groups that are trained however relatively small are put into the middle of territory that is in, is very hostile to them that would find them in the middle of al-qaeda territory outnumbered and outgunned essentially and so these groups would quickly fall to these al-qaeda militants who would then take the weaponry that had been given to these rebels and use it themselves and this is one of the big failures from western intervention in syria and we'll go into it every now and again during this conversation but the best way I can describe the U.S. and Western foreign policy in Syria is extremely erratic. And we will see that the United States will arm one group one day and then disarm that group later on. We'll arm a rival group. will arm two groups that are opposed to one another. And it doesn't make any sense because the United States' goal was never to overthrow the Assad regime officially it worried that there would be a power vacuum that it would have to solve. And so it wanted to keep the conflict going, but ensure that neither side could gain over the other one. And unfortunately, what this does is lead to a delegitimizing of the opposition forces that, if given power, would implement the reforms that the early protesters wanted to see. And because a lot of these more radical elements tended to be better fighters, because of their experience in other countries. It leads to them gaining popularity among the civilian population because they are seen as the only ones who are able to effectively fight both either the regime or ISIS. And early on in the conflict, we have powers in the Middle East, notably Saudi Arabia and Qatar, which will provide funds and weapons to the opposition, both moderate and Islamist. And so there's lots of money being poured in here, but with no overall aim. So you have Saudi Arabia funding one group, while Qatar will be funding another one that actively opposes that group, but neither one will actively intervene in the conflict. They're trying to execute what's called soft power. means you don't have to deploy soldiers to a battlefield to make a difference. That if providing funds and guns and money is their way of garnering loyalty from those groups, then that's how they're going to try and do it. But again, this means that the opposition is extremely divided among these different groups that have their own competing goals and aims, and it cripples them immensely. But that should also tell us about the government on the opposing flank. You know, there's a reason that the phrase divide and conquer is so popular. It's because it is a popular tactic, because if your enemy is divided and fighting among themselves, then they are easy pickings. It allows you to pick and choose who you focus on, who you can play off of one another. But because the government isn't able to do this, it also shows us that the government, even with Russian air power, isn't in a position of necessarily being superior is doesn't have this overwhelming strength now that it still has its own fundamental problems with its military capabilities this has led to a lot of critics kind of pointing out the hypocrisy of these foreign nations who are saying publicly oh we want peace we we don't want the conflict to rage on anymore but They're also subtly, you know, thrusting money under the table to these other groups to keep fighting, that they aren't trying to promote either unity or diplomatic negotiations. They're fueling the conflict, and this is coming from all sides. And the Assad government enjoys heavy foreign involvement from the Lebanese Hezbollah group, uh, sending massive amounts of formations and military fighters into Syria, along with Iranian militias, Uh, because Iran will emerge as one of the key supporters of the Assad government, being another Shia power who doesn't want to see either American influence or its position threatened in Syria. So we see a lot of Iranian militias being sent to Syria. We see a lot of officers from the Iranian military being sent to Syria to help train and organize government forces. Uh, Again, the Russians have their own military units and air power assisting the government. And as time goes on, we see that other major powers such as Turkey, Russia, the United States, will start to deploy actual ground units to Syria to help train and equip local forces. And then fast forward to July of 2017, when the Trump administration will end the CIA program to train and equip Syrian rebels and will shift its focus to Kurdish units as the primary factor and primary tool of fighting ISIS. And this had already been effectively a policy under the Obama administration from the United States, but it wasn't wholly official. It's not, again, until July 2017 that we see a formal end to this program of ending support to Arab fighters in Syria. And there's a great worry that This expanding influence by these different powers is being done to exploit Syria rather than for its serve its own good. Now, the big turning point that we have in Syria is in 2015, and it's along the border with Turkey that we have the town of Kobani, which otherwise is a perfectly normal town, unsignificant. It has a border post that leads into Turkey. It's a crossing point. But this was one of the last bastions of resistance by the Kurds uh, who were fighting against ISIS. We already had Free Syrian Army and other rebel units had been long swept from the area by ISIS, but the Kurds were putting up a magnificent fight. And it looked like they were going to fall in Kobani to ISIS, who had launched a very determined offensive to root out this resistance against them once and for all. And this sees the first major involvement of the United States actively supporting the, the Kurds against ISIS when they begin to deploy heavy amounts of air power, which stall the ISIS offensive and allow the Kurds to launch a counterattack against them. It's after this point that the U.S. will actively start partnering with the Kurds over Arab fighters in the region as the primary group to combat ISIS because the Kurds will show that with the United States' help, they are extremely effective fighters. And it's later that we have the establishment of the Syrian Democratic Forces, often abbreviated to the SDF, which is primarily a Kurdish force. Most of the forces that are within it are Kurds. But there has been a more active push recently by the United States and others to try and equip and train Arab fighters into its ranks. And this is primarily because Turkey, who is a U.S. ally in the region and borders Syria, does not like the Kurds because it's facing its own insurgency by the Kurdish PKK, which is another group in Turkey that is waging an insurgency campaign against Turkey. And so Turkey sees any form of Kurdish militia as a threat to its own national security. And so the formation of the SDF and the attempt to pursue more Arab fighters into its ranks is the effort by the United States to kind of satisfy Turkey that this unit isn't a threat. And it's through this effort to organize these Kurdish units and with significant U.S. air power that the SDF is able to organize and capture most of northern Syria and take it from ISIS. And it's later on that we see in August of 2016 that the SDF will capture the city of Mambij, which is in the northern countryside of the Aleppo province near Turkey, from ISIS, which is the first significant location that had been seized by the Kurds, by this new strategic force. It's also in 2016, though, that we see kind of the fickleness of U.S. policy in the region. All while this action is going on in the north of the country, the SDF are fighting for their lives. And the U.S. is waging a campaign to aid them. In the far south of the country, in the desert region, on the border of Iraq and Syria, the U.S. has gathered together a bunch of vetted Arab fighters. So these are young men that have been vetted by the U.S. government as not being security threats and have been trained and equipped by the United States at this border post known as Al-Tanf. And this is in the middle of the desert, like I said. And so they've been actively training and equipping these fighters there. And the reason is because they are preparing for an operation that they hope will essentially cut ISIS's territory in half. And we have to kind of imagine the geography of the region just to kind of give us an accurate picture of what they're trying. The Euphrates River runs through Syria and into Iraq. And the Euphrates is ISIS's main thoroughfare essentially it's this main bulk of the territory where a lot of the populace is based a lot of these towns and cities raqqa is along the coast of along the riverbanks of the euphrates and a lot of these other important strategic centers and along the border of iraq and syria there are two towns there's one named al-bukamal and one named al Kham. and so what the united states was planning on doing was having this new rebel force called the new Syrian army, which again, it had been trained and equipped by the United States, along with Iraqi tribal forces to launch a joint attack together and capture both sides of the border, essentially cutting ISIS in half. That was the goal. Now what happens is this offensive is launched, but unfortunately, these Iraqi tribal units kind of give away the surprise and ISIS notices their movements and so begins to prepare for the attack. That being said, early on in the offensive, in the first few hours, the new Syrian army is able to take its initial objectives along the outskirts of the city of al-Bukamal, with the United States providing air cover overhead, as per the mission plan. However, it's at this time that the United States receives intel about an ISIS convoy that's near Fallujah in Iraq. And given that there was an offensive by the Iraqi government toward the city that was impending, The United States saw this as a strategic opportunity. So what it did was removed all the aircraft over the new Syrian army as it was fighting against ISIS to go and strike this convoy. But what that does is it leaves the new Syrian army without any air cover and the ability to counter ISIS attacks, which had been prepared and waiting for them. And without this crucial air support, they are routed and most of the attacking force is killed. And so you can see how that kind of puts the U.S. in a bind and kind of earns the animosity of a lot of different rebel groups who see the U.S. as having abandoned strategic partners in the region. There are several U.S. policymakers in the government that will come out against this move as abandoning our allies and seeing it as a missed opportunity, to kind of put it very lightly. But again, this makes these Syrian rebels look at the United States and say... Why should we trust you? And then not only that, but then to have the United States switch its support over to essentially a rival faction in the war essentially puts the United States out of the goodwill of any rebel groups that still had goodwill for it. And beginning in late August of 2016, Turkey, along with its own group of Syrian rebels that it had trained and equipped in Turkey, began Operation Euphrates Shield which is launched in the northern countryside of Aleppo province, to help secure the border from ISIS and block further advances by the Kurdish SDF. So the Turkish have this joint goal in mind. They, one, want to secure the border against ISIS. They don't want ISIS bordering it anymore, understandably. But they also want to prevent the Kurds from expanding any further. Because as we mentioned, the city of Mambij which is held by the Kurds at this point, is only a stone's throw away from another territory that the Kurds hold, but have not connected to yet. And this is the province, this is the region of Afrin, which is another Kurdish bastion in the mountains in the far northwest of Syria. And so the Turks desperately want to prevent the Kurds from uniting these areas and essentially locking Turkey out of the entire border region. So the Turks prepare this free Syrian army force and they are able to do it. They are able to largely secure their objectives. They seize a large uh, town, small city named Al-Bab in the northern countryside of Aleppo and are able to successfully block the Syrian democratic forces from joining up with each other. It's also this time that we have with the significant aid of Iranian Russian forces, the government also begins to push ISIS forces further east, and even eventually capturing the ancient city of Palmyra uh, in March of 2017. And it's with this continuing offensive that the government's also able to lift a three-year siege, which had been waged against the city of dier Ezor along the banks of the Euphrates again in September. And crucially, what we have in October of 2017 is the Islamic State capital of Raqqa, Falling to the Syrian Democratic Forces after a several month long battle, in which almost 80% of the city is destroyed by United States air power. And ISIS further collapses beyond that point and loses almost all its territory in Syria. Going on, we have another offensive by the Turkish Free Syrian Army, along with Turkish forces, against that region of Afrin that we mentioned earlier codenamed Operation Olive Branch and sees further Turkish involvement in the war along with the establishment of the so-called National Army which is the first major attempt by an outside power to try and unify these opposition forces and to create a method of returning refugees into Syria. Because all while this has been being fought over, the conflict in Syria has caused the worst refugee crisis since World War II. And that is no small feat if we think about those conflicts. And so Turkey is one of the largest hosts of refugees in its country, and that puts a strain on its economy. And so what it wants to do is not only create a reliable partner that it can utilize in Syria, but it also wants to try and return a lot of these refugees home. And going back to what I said about this attempt to Create these demilitarized zones, almost these de-escalation zones in Syria, which is partly negotiated by Turkey, Russia, Iran, and the United States. These are set up along rebel-held territories, but what they are really, is, what they really are, is a way for the government to stop fighting essentially on all fronts at once and choose to concentrate on whatever pocket it wants to concentrate on at any given moment. And this allows the government to essentially crush most of the pockets of resistance against its rule. And so at this point, the only major forces of opposition that are left in Syria are in the northern and eastern parts of the country, whereas previously they had been in the northern, eastern, in the middle, in the south, in the west, in all areas of Syria. There were pockets of resistance, but at this point, there's only a few. And Turkey is trying to employ its own strategy of trying to unify these rebel groups. In the northern part of the country, it benefits from almost having a free hand in being able to try and rebuild a lot of critical civilian infrastructure, to try and organize rebel groups that aren't accustomed to working together, and also crucially trying to set up a base for the Syrian interim government to base itself and form a legitimate political body against the Assad government. Now, in what is commonly known as Greater Idlib, which is the province that most of the rebel-held territory is focused on, but it also includes parts of other provinces, hence the Greater Idlib, Idlib is a major battleground among different factions, whereas the northern part of the country that's under Turkish control primarily has a lot of moderate rebel forces, the greater Idlib area is home to moderates all the way to extreme radical jihadists. And these groups are constantly fighting one another. And so what Turkey has been trying to do is form a quasi-alliance between the more moderate and moderate Islamist factions in that region. And these are known as the National Liberation Front or the National Front for Liberation, depending on who's talking. And they are facing off against a coalition of more radical Islamists known as Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, otherwise abbreviated to HTS. And these groups are trying to wage a war against one another, essentially, while there is no fighting against the government as a part of these de-escalation agreements. But no, so far, n- neither of them have effectively won out over the other one. And this is part of the Turkish strategy to kind of slowly delegitimize these Islamist groups, that they are not the strong ones in the park. As we discussed earlier, the reason that these radical groups were able to gain prominence in the first place is because they were effectively combating the regime and the government and rather rebel groups. So Turkey is trying to undo that confidence in those groups, but it's going to take a while. And effectively right now we have a stalemate where the Syrian Democratic Forces essentially control almost all territory east of the Euphrates River, along with the city of Mambij west of it. There is still a small ISIS pocket that is along the Euphrates River, and That's to combat the narrative that ISIS has been defeated. It has not been. Not only because it still holds concrete territory in Syria, but because largely ISIS is now retreating underground. It is becoming a guerrilla force once again as it started out. And in Syria alone, the United States estimates that there are about 2,000 ISIS fighters that are still there, with an overall estimate of about 10,000 in both Iraq and Syria. So ISIS is by no means defeated, even though it might have been largely defeated on the field of battle, it has retreated back to the shadows again. And more evidence is being uncovered about the government of Bashar al-Assad, who according to the Syrian Observatory of Human Rights, along with the United Nations, has killed a majority of the civilians in the war, and intelligence has also uncovered large-scale executions at prison camps in government territory. And this will be done where they will execute prisoners and then throw them into large crematoriums to rapidly get rid of the bodies and to get rid of any evidence that that has happened. Most of the areas that have been recaptured by the government remain in ruins, partly because, like I said, the Russian and government strategy is essentially if you level the whole city, then there's no one to fight against you. (laughs) It goes back to an old crusader saying that says, ah, kill them all and God will sort out the rest. And that medieval idea has transcended to the modern age with this strategy. And because the, the Assad government has lost a lot of crucial infrastructure, agricultural land and oil fields, it no longer has the financial capital to rebuild its territories. And as I mentioned before, the Russian economy is not strong enough to spend billions of dollars on reconstructing syria and so the situation is a very somber one that even though the government has taken a lot of these territories back they can't rebuild any of them and what rebuilding has happened is extremely limited and a majority of these refugees aren't coming home because they fear the repercussions of having fled and there are plenty of cases that have been emerging from government areas that have been recently recaptured where rebel groups and civilians have signed what are called reconciliation agreements with the government that essentially forgives their crimes of either rebellion or dodging conscription. But the government has been arresting these activists anyway, and either sending them to these prisons or conscripting them into the military again. And so refugees abroad don't Largely want to return to those areas because they fear for their own lives and their own safety. Even civilians that are dual citizens aren't spared from that fate. It was recently in the news that a young Syrian woman who was a dual citizen from Syria and the United States early on in the conflict who had gone to Syria to work with international aid organizations to help civilians that were being injured was arrested by the Syrian government, tortured, and executed. And she was a young woman in her 20s, again, a citizen of the United States, but there's been largely no action against that and no major coverage of it. So for refugees who are either only citizens of Syria or have relatives that have been fighting against the government, they fear for their lives and they don't want to return. But part of the initiative to try and combat that has largely fallen into Turkey's hands. And in the areas that Turkey almost fully occupies along with the national army, um, it's helped to repair communities in northern Syria and organize a number of rebel groups, like I said, to form more professional, not only military groups, but also Not having militias patrol the streets, but rather actual police departments and military police to try and crack down on abuses by these fighters that used to be allowed to do whatever they wanted with impunity. They have helped to rebuild hospitals and schools in northern Syria. Now, obviously, there's a flip side to that because unfortunately, no one does anything out of the good of their heart. In a lot of these cases, Turkey is essentially trying to create a loyal population that it can use to protect itself, to work against the Kurds. We don't necessarily know the long-term game of what will happen with these groups, but in the schools, Turkish is taught as a secondary language. Degrees that are earned in schools in Syria in opposition areas are accepted in Turkey, which is not true of anywhere else in the world that if you earn a university degree in a Syrian rebel-held university, it could literally have the exact same curriculum as the government territory does, but no one will accept that degree. So Turkey has started accepting those. The soldiers and police officers in Syria in these opposition-held areas are being paid using Turkish currency, And a lot of their uniforms are being provided by Turkey. And so Turkey is essentially trying to create, again, this loyal proxy force in Syria that it can use to its own agenda and try and use to return refugees that it has in its territories back home. And like I said, Turkey is using the national army to launch campaigns against the Kurds, which it already did in Afrin to great success. Um, And it's threatening to, again... There have been more than a few clashes between the the Kurds, the Syrian Democratic Forces, and the government. Um, One such incident involved U.S. airstrikes against not only government forces, but actually that Russian private military company, the Wagner Company, which resulted in over 100 government casualties. And both Israel and Iran appear to be on the verge of conflict in Syria as Israel sees Iran as a vital threat to its national security and targets both Iranian units along with Hezbollah units in Syria as it tries to avoid another war between itself and Hezbollah the reason you might have gotten reinterested in this whole conflict is probably because of the Trump administration's announcement of the rapid US withdrawal from Syria And like I said before, the United States policy in Syria has gone back and forth between the years. Our poor support of moderate rebel groups early on meant that they lost a good measure of credibility with civilians and other groups that would have joined their cause. And this led to the rise of these radical elements. And given that some of them had combat experience, again, were able to perform better against these government units and were able to attack moderate groups and gain their weapons, which again led to the populace seeing them as being stronger and offered support to those groups. There were cases where the Pentagon and the CIA would have their own train-and-equip programs, and the groups that they were training would be fighting against one another. So there was no effective, unitary, serious strategy. Because the United States has seen its foreign policy interventions as being failures. And unfortunately, the United States hasn't found a middle ground in its interventions. It either goes way too hard or way too soft. The way too hard would be an example like Iraq, where after we invaded, we essentially dismantled the entire government and decided to build it from the ground up. And that more or less happened the same way in Afghanistan. And again, that's vastly different. Simplifying those conflicts, but that would be the example of the U.S. trying the hard way to rebuild a country. On the flip side of going too soft, in Libya, the U.S. government bombed Gaddafi's forces, but then when the war was over and these rebels asked for, United, for U.S. help to help rebuild, the United States said, "No, we're not getting involved further," and left, and that's caused Libya to continue to be. A multi divided country that has no single unified government. The US was more interested in exhausting Assad and then overthrowing him. And that further damaged the abil- ability to appeal and the credibility of the rebels. In northern Aleppo, the US would launch occasional airstrikes in support of the FSA, the Free Syrian Army but would not do it in other ones. Forces that were trained and equipped by the United States would be deployed inside hostile territory with small numbers that would be easily defeated by more radical elements. And as, as I mentioned before, the incident involving the new Syrian army showed that not only did the U.S. drop the ball, but also lost a good amount of faith among the opposition. And that shift toward the Kurds as its primary partner in Syria further alienated a lot of people. And this erratic support by the United States unsurprisingly led to a lot of anger among the Arab fighters in the region, the Free Syrian Army. And so when there's actually an attempt by the United States to move soldiers into northern Aleppo with the Turkish forces, but they are shouted out by the Free Syrian Army who don't want anything to do with the United States. They don't want the United States there and the U.S. forces leave. And the current situation that we find ourselves in with the United States withdrawing have the U.S. forces there have largely been in a support role. We haven't had U.S. forces on the front lines of the conflict, you know, leading offensive charges for the Kurds. We've either been acting as advisors, as intelligence officers, as artillery support, but not frontline soldiers. And there have been five servicemen killed in Syria. But on the flip side, there have been thousands of casualties among the Kurds and the Syrian Democratic Forces in comparison, which, considering the size of the overall operations and the amount of casualties that have been sustained in the conflict, is extremely low. And a rapid withdrawal of forces is extremely short-sighted because it doesn't allow for a proper handoff to our allies in the area. And that's not to say, you know, I'm taking a position on either side of the aisle, but the U.S. has a tendency to create its own enemies, essentially. And if we were to rapidly withdraw, then that makes the Kurds, vulnerable to turkey who has been waiting to attack them for a long time and has been waiting for the opportunity so turkey has already announced its intentions to essentially eliminate the kurds and the syrian democratic forces from northeastern syria and this makes the kurds extremely nervous because not only do they not want to fight another conflict but they don't want to die which is should be fairly common sense And this is just going to cause, you know, further destruction, death, and refugee problems as people will flee the violence. And more importantly, the Syrian Democratic Forces have already shown a kind of a willingness to use the regime in Russia for its own defense against Turkey if it sees the opportunity to. So depending on the stated goal of our involvement in Syria, potentially a lot of these areas that have been captured by these Syrian Democratic Forces, could be simply handed over to the government and Russia, which would undo a lot of the United States and Western Coalition's efforts in Syria. And, again, crucially, ISIS isn't defeated. It still holds territory. It still has the ability to mount a comeback, even if it doesn't appear that way. And that's what guerrilla groups rely on is the lack of foresight to see how they could come back. And there's also the fate of that border region that I talked about earlier with the new Syrian army. Not only is that area home to those allied rebel factions, but it's also home to a refugee camp known as the Rukban refugee camp, which holds more than 45,000 people in the middle of the desert, who have fled from the Assad government, who are now at their mercy, essentially. And so this could cause another humanitarian disaster, another refugee crisis that Jordan and other countries would have to deal with then. And Iraq itself has voiced concern about that withdrawal because it sees that power vacuum forming in eastern Syria which will then harm the security of Iraq and allow ISIS to harass Iraqi forces and then melt back into Syrian territory, which would then cause harm to coalition forces in Iraq and our allies in the region. And that animosity will just cause more people to look to Iran for support um, against those security threats. And by abandoning positions in Syria, it harms U.S. strategic interests in the region as local partners, potential partners, will see the U.S. as an unreliable partner. And there's a, a phrase from a political theorist, I can't remember his name, that essentially says, it's dangerous to be an enemy of the United States, but it's deadly to be an ally. And that was said many years ago, but it still holds true to this day. It's something that's rapidly ongoing and developing, and by the time this is out, which should hopefully be within the next few days of now, the situation could have dramatically taken a turn. Already since that announcement of the withdrawal, uh, the administration has already come out and clarified along with the Turkish government in saying that the withdrawal won't be as rapid and that Turkish forces will make sure that there isn't a power vacuum to fill, but there's been no concrete way of doing that. Because the Kurds simply certainly don't want the Turks to be in their territory. And the Turks have made very clear that they don't want the Kurds to be there at all. And so again, that's a situation that's going to be rapidly developing. But again, this is a conflict that shows no signs of ending. And it could well continue past 2020. It could go into 2030 for all I know. But it is an extremely complex conflict conflict that even in the time that I've spent talking about this and I have barely scratched the surface of this conflict you know like I said people have conferences that are multiple hours long about a single event in the conflict and so being able to cover every single aspect of this war is impossible without the time provided so what I want to do is again foster an interest in what's going on in the world and help you not only have some semblance of understanding what's going on so that way you can have an opinion on it, whatever that opinion may be, but have an idea of what you're talking about. Or if you hear someone saying that's something that's incorrect, you can correct them. And I fully encourage you to go out and research it, look at multiple sources, and compare them. See what's going on. Look at the Turkish occupation of northern Aleppo. Look at what's involved in greater lib look what's going on with the kurds in a general geographic region not just in syria look at the assad government look at all of them and either make a decision don't make a decision but be informed because that's my goal my goal isn't to tell you what to believe or who to support it's to provide information and Next time, we won't be talking about something so modern. We're going to be going back into the past. Very, very long time. But to end on a, on a more pleasing note, I'm going to be doing a giveaway um, of a hard copy book called The Fall of the Roman Empire. And so if you would like to enter to win that book and have it mailed to you, free shipping, then if you go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash traveling all you have to do is become a patron and leave a comment about something that you would like to talk about in the future. Uh, questions you might have about a topic that we've already discussed. And I will randomly pick the winners a week from now. And I will announce it on the next podcast, who will win that nice copy of the book. And I will see you all next time.